0: Good. If you could have the psalm open in front of you, we're going to look at it now. Because as we saw last week, the book of Psalms is the best place to go when we need to pray through our emotions and our heart conditions. Over the last three weeks, the Psalms have taken us through what to pray as God's people when we feel that we're under God's judgment because we've, been, uh, we've begun to live like God doesn't matter. We've also seen how to pray when we need to repent for sin that has broken our relationship with God. And we've seen how to pray through deep injustice. Those psalms show us how to cry out to God in loads of different situations, both good and bad. And they help us to come out of those situations with a better worldview. They help us to grow. They help us to understand God better, whatever the circumstances we're going through. But, you know, the Psalms also teach us how to pray when we find the world around us is turning in open defiance against God. That's why the Psalm we're looking at this morning, Psalm 53, is actually in the Bible. Because in it, David looks at the open defiance of the world around him, and he shows us what our right response is. He shows us how to cry out to God. He shows us the right worldview, the things we need to say, the ways we need to express our deep emotions. So that we have a right way of processing what we see around us. And this morning, it's fair to say that this psalm is a psalm written for our times. When our culture has moved so far away from Christianity, from having a, a real voice in our culture, to now where it's openly opposed. Uh, If you want an example of the open opposition Christianity faces today, I read a newspaper article recently uh, uh, about Richard Dawkins' new children's book. The article said, traditional Christian values have long underpinned children's books, such as the Chronicles of Narnia. But now Richard Dawkins wants to give youngsters a different perspective, with a new book called Atheism for Children, The outspoken scientist hopes it will stop the religious indoctrination of children by schools and family members. That's an example of how much we need a psalm that guides us through praying in our times. And Psalm 53 gives us that practical help and a perspective because it shares the humble prayer of a believer engaging in a world like ours. And there is hope here because Psalm 53 ends with joy, not despair, triumph, not disaster, victory, not defeat, even in the midst of a messed up world like ours. What David teaches us in this psalm is that when we're faced with a culture that is aggressively defiant against God, we're to engage with it humbly, knowing that we're not above anyone else in it, but also confidently knowing that God is sovereignly working in spite of what we see. And that means we're allowed to both grieve what we see in our world, but also to hope as we turn to our knees in prayer, like David does here. So let's look at verse 1 together. And our first point is this, recognize foolishness and take it to God. Recognize foolishness and take it to God. So David starts by uh, stating the condition of the people around him. It's a sweeping statement but it's clinical in its understanding of human nature. Let me read it to you. The fool says, in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. Now, in English, the word fool can be used in quite a number of different ways. A fool can be someone who is a bit daft or ditzy. It can be slightly fun or even an endearing way of describing someone. That's how I take it in my family, anyway. Or it can be a much stronger insult, describing someone who's done something dangerous or irresponsible. In Hebrew, though, the word for fool is nabal, and there's no niceness about it. It's a strong insult. The psalmist looks at the person who is aggressively determined to live their lives without God, who shakes a fist of defiance against him. Sorry, got a bit of a wind blowing. My notes all over the place. And David calls them a fool. A fool. He's not mincing his words. He's saying their actions only lead to disaster. That's the direction of foolishness. That's his claim. And we only need to look at history. History tells us he's right. When a culture moves away from acknowledging God's word and God's rule, then then it finds itself socially broken and morally adrift. So in a foolish culture, there is no absolute standard of morality or judgment. And and inevitably, it's not the strong or the rich who suffer, it's the weak and the vulnerable. And a good test to see how foolish a culture is, is is to consider the cultural attitudes towards the vulnerable. For example, if you look in your Bibles throughout the New and the Old Testament the command is to look after the vulnerable the orphan the defenceless child and the widow the elderly who have no one to stand up for themselves modern Britain promotes abortion and is dangerously close to allowing euthanasia or assisted dying for the elderly the orphan and the widow." More chillingly, in this country, the term paedophile is being replaced with the less emotionally charged term of minor attractive people. In other words, in this country there is even a a, a movement, a drive in our culture to normalise child abuse. Over lockdown, domestic violence has increased by nearly 40%. Last year, there were over 10,000 reported cases of modern slavery in this country. We live in a foolish culture, a culture that dangerously shakes its fist against God's rule. How do we respond? That's the question. Now that we see the relevance, how do we respond? Do you know, before we condemn our culture, we have to humbly admit to the fact that in each of us is the same desire to be independent of God. The same desire to live our ways under our rules and the desire simply to be foolish. That's the heart of sin and the heart of each of us. As fools, we fight for self-rule in whatever capacity, and it will always be against the truth that God rules And we cannot escape his rule, no matter how much we try. So we can carry on being fools in this world and join the inevitable destruction it causes to others and ourselves, or we can find a way out. That's what David is challenging us with. And the key to the way out is humility. Because the humble person realises we're all fools. And the humble person submits to God's rule in this world. In other words, if we have not submitted to God's rule, there is a way of wisdom. We can talk to him and say, Lord God, I see the foolishness of my own heart. I see my own fist shaking at you and I realize it's wrong. Will you be my king, my ruler? And also, if we have submitted to him, we can, we can come to him again and again and again. And ask him for grace, for that daily resubmission, knowing knowing that our sinful selves will always want to rule against him. Realizing that foolishness and saying, Lord God, give me wisdom, wisdom to see your rule and to apply it to my heart and to follow that rule wherever it may take, whatever it may cost. Because that is wisdom. And it's with that humility that David cries out to God. Foolishness is all around him. And we've got to we've got to recognize in these opening verses that David is not condemning his world. He's 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 pointing out to God what he sees in this world. In other words, he's pointing out in a humble way what he sees. That kind of humility comes out of seeing the world for what it is. We are broken by sin and we need a saviour. And it drives us to our knees. Sometimes it drives us to tears as we see the news and the brokenness and the atrocities that a fool's world commits. I'll wait just a second. But you know, David here teaches us how to pray for an openly defiant world. We, play, we pray humbly, confessing our open defiance against God. We pray what we see and we cry out to God in humility. And that humility means that our engagement with our world is stronger. And that's something we often need to remember and, and learn as Christians, that we engage with our world humbly. You know, an example of that learning process, that learning a humble engagement in the world, is a pro-life movement in America. For many years, throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was a a, a militant movement, loudly and sometimes violently condemning women for murdering their unborn children. But in the mid-90s, there was a gradual change, a shift in their thinking, a gradual humbling of the movement. And today, rather than being militant and loud about murder, they support women who are seeking abortions as victims of a broken society. Women who need care and love in a foolish world. A world that doesn't see damage done against them and their unborn children. And we can, in that spirit, engage with our culture we can humbly write to our MP about the foolishness of our nation. And can I encourage us to do it? Really genuinely do it. Take up a pen this week and write to our MP about the foolishness of our nation, about abortion, about euthanasia, about exploitation, about slavery. That is God's given means in our society to publicly sway opinion. And we can show compassion for those caught in the crossfire of our brokenness. The homeless, the orphan, the widow. And we preach. We can preach. We can preach by living and sharing with this broken world the truth in love that God is love. And his love is what we desperately need. David sums up that state of humanity without God. And he talks to God about it. But he also teaches us how to handle the emotions of seeing the world for what it is. And that's why he goes on to see the world from God's perspective. And that's the second point. Be comforted by God's perspective on this world. Having spoken about the fool, David writes about how God sees this world. So in verses 1 to 3, he says this. There is none who do good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see If there are any who understand, who seek after God, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So David says, you know, I'm seeing not one person who left to themselves would willingly seek out God and live according to his ways. No one, not me, not you, not anyone. What God sees is the reality of all of us in this world. Our minds are corrupt, our desires are corrupt, and our deeds are corrupt there is no one who does good. Now that might jar a bit, but it's a truism that even sitcoms have grappled with. I remember a Friends episode called The One About the bee, where Joey, that that great philosopher, uh, claims that there is no such thing as a selfless good deed, which sets up the rest of the episode where Phoebe tries to dismissively prove him wrong. But the, the comedy lies in the fact that everything she tries to do uh, that is selfless, ends up making her feel better, which stops it from being selfless. So in the end, she lets a bee sting her. It quote, unquote, so it can look cool in front of its bee friends. Surely, she believes, this is a selfless act. Phoebe allows herself to be hurt so the bee could benefit. And then Joey points out the bee died in, in, in her attempt to be selfless. So her, her effort to make the bee look cool ended in its death. To everyone's astonishment, Phoebe has to admit, Joey is right. There's no such thing as a selfless good deed. And the same point is here in the Bible. No one does a selfless good deed in and of itself. And rather than being explored in a comical way, David explains this truth from God's perspective. The truth is that there are no good Things in this world, and not everything we do is evil. Sorry, the truth is that there, are n- that there are good things in this world, and not everything we do is evil in and of itself. But isn't it true that even the good we do is tainted by bad motives, a- and the godless pull of our lives? That's what it means when it says, there is no one who does good, not one. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul underlines that by quoting a series of Old Testament passages. In Romans 3, verse 19, he writes, No one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. It's, it's, it's a long and, 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 and just an honest account of humanity. And Paul's point is David's here too. That as God looks at this world, he sees that everyone wants his sovereign rule for themselves. Everyone has a foolish heart. But here's the truth. In spite of that, we are still here. Doesn't that amaze you? In spite of our hearts... In spite of no one doing good, we are still here. And it tells us that God has not finished with us yet. God sees the muck, yes, and that's what we've seen right through this psalm so far. But he doesn't respond in vengeance or despair or wash his hands of the world and start again. Rather, God sees the muck of this world with patience and compassion. And with his eyes on something else, his plan of salvation. That's why there's still sin in this world. God has not finished with it. He's steadily revealing more and more of his glory. And that's why he sent his son into this world, into this month. Because one day God promises it will be undone. And we're to take comfort from that. We're to take comfort from the fact that God knows every heart, every action, everything in this world. And he waits patiently for his plan to unfold. And that means he's not passive in this world. He sustains the heartbeat of the vilest sinner. And he opens the eyes of the wickedest men and women to his grace. And as we remind ourselves of these truths like David did, we can take heart, really find comfort in them. And we can speak to God and look out on this world with his same compassion and grace. Because one day, God is coming. One day, God is coming. And that's what our last point talks about this morning. We're to hope in God's salvation. We are to hope in God's salvation. Do you know the the New Testament builds on this theme in wonderful glory. But one of the consequences of seeing this world as it is and taking comfort from God's perspective is that it leads to hope. Look at verse 4 and 5. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as they're eating bread. They never call on God. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scatters the bones of those who attach you put them to shame, but God despises them. Now, those verses are slightly confusing because the person being talked about and to um, is constantly changing. But in verse 4, he's talking about the evildoers and their insatiable appetite for evil against God's people. But then at the start of verse 5, the they describes God's people who are overwhelmed with dread in the face of this opposition. And what David recognises is that God's people could so easily be bogged down by what they see. But he says, but you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be bogged down by what you see. And in the second part of verse 5, he talks to them directly about God's faithful care for them. He says, God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. That's David's hope. Because one day, God is going to give the victory. Our biggest enemies... Are the sin inside us, the worldview of the wicked that we can so easily make our own, and the devil, who is constantly waging war against God's people? But God promises here that one day those enemies will be scattered, their bones, their strength will be will be broken, and God will shame them all. Because God has rejected our sin. The world, world, world view, and the devil. He has rejected them. He promises victory over them. How? Well, God has promised his Messiah, hasn't he? That's what he looks to at the end. Look at verse 6 of me. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. That's where this psalm ends. That... That is one of the commonest Old Testament cries. It's a longing for God's salvation. And we know that salvation for God's people has come out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, because it was there that Jesus died and rose again. And he died and rose because we are also corrupt. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But God, through his son dying on the cross, has worked to renew our corrupt hearts. He sent his son. He dealt with sin. He poured out his spirit. Salvation has come. And David knows the seriousness and the scale of sin, but rather than dreading it, rather than getting bogged down in it, he cries out to God for salvation because he knows that salvation is the only way foolish hearts will change and listen to the wisdom of God. Salvation is the only way of hope. And David knows that the day will come when God will act to restore his people. And he says when that day comes, that day will be a day of joy. And then that joy will never stop. And that day has come, hasn't it? Yes, we are still waiting for Jesus to return. And on that day, he will end foolishness. He will destroy evil. He will take away death forever. But the joy and gladness David was prophesying here was established when Jesus rose again from the dead. Because all who have hope in Jesus have the same joy. All who trust in him have certainty that when we die, we will be with him. And one day he will return. And when he does return, we too will rise from the dead, just like he rose from the dead on that day. And we need to hear this today because... The psalm we've just read about is a world that is not just ambivalent towards God, but defiant against God. A world that doesn't just not care about God, but more and more actively shakes its fist at God. And if we're not careful to echo this humble prayer, it can lead to wrong responses and a bad Christian witness in this world. For example, if we don't echo this humble prayer about defiance against God, we can become arrogant and judgmental. Because in our pride, we think ourselves better than the lost around us. So we end up being defensive and uncaring. We end up becoming more obsessed with winning arguments than souls. That's the response of the person who forgets that this psalm is not just about the hearts of those who believe there is no God. It's also about our hearts that carry the same attitude. And on the other end of the spectrum, if we're not careful to echo this humble prayer, we could also be in danger of despairing of this world. Of sinking under the the brokenness and despair we see around us, of sinking even under persecution. And that's the response of dread. The person who forgets God's care and control, who forgets that God is not surprised by anything that this world does. No atrocity, no crime, no attitude shocks or scares God. But on the other hand, if we do echo this prayer humbly, well, our eyes are lifted to the one who has an eternal perspective, who sees the bigger picture, who will bring wisdom so that this foolish world will see the wisdom of God's seeming foolish in coming to this world not to condemn it, but to save it. And in hearing this psalm, we're given a tool that helps us to reach out in realness with our world. We can speak to colleagues and friends and neighbours about how God sees us all, in all our muckiness, and tell them that because God is great, He loves us at the same time. So much so that he sent like his son to deal with the muckiness of earth. No one else, no one else in this world, no atheist, no false god, can claim to know love on that scale. No one can claim to know a God like ours, who loves so much that he's willing to give his life to pay for the sin and the mutt that he sees in this world. That is our joy. That is our hope. And Psalm 53 brings it out in all its joy, in all its glory. We can really, really engage properly with this world that shakes its fist at God. Why because David has written about it and we have this tool and our God sees it all and we need not dread because salvation is coming. God has given us hope. He's given us our loving Saviour who will walk with us in it. Even in this world that is full of foolishness, our God will walk in it with us. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for this psalm that's so real about, about our world. We thank you for the comfort that David writes about his world, that it's so relevant to our world. Lord, we thank you that we can take the foolishness we see around us and in us to our God and cry out to you for mercy and compassion and revelation. Lord God, we thank you that you see everything in this world. All the things we see, but all the things we don't see too. And you have not finished with it yet. We thank you, Lord God, for your compassion and patience. And we ask for the same compassion and patience. We ask for the same humility that you have. So that we can deal with our world. We can work in our world and reach out to our world with your hope. And we thank you, Lord God, for the hope that you end this psalm on. That one day, Lord God, when Jesus comes, there will be no tears. There will be no mourning. There will be no suffering. There will be no sickness. Lord God, when Jesus returns, all the muck in this world will be ended and this world will be renewed. And we look forward to that day with such hope and certainty. And Father, we ask for the help We ask for the joy, more and more of it, Lord God. We ask for the help to see that day. We ask for the joy to rejoice in that day, to see its reality, to live in its reality so that we might be strengthened to walk in this world with humility, with love, and reach out to the world with the love of God that we have in our hearts. Oh, Father God, once again, we thank you for this word. May you change us by it. May we be encouraged and strengthened. May we be filled with joy. We pray this in your name. Amen.